The Latin American population in the U.S. is growing, and the influence of Latin cuisine is gaining prominence alongside it. How is this impacting the U.S. grocery retail sector as a whole? Aurora Groceries' Omar George and City National Bank's Eric Beerguts join us today to help break this down on this episode of the Food Institute Podcast, coming at you right now. Before we get started, I did want to thank City National Bank for their continued support of the Food Institute podcast, and they are the sponsor of this episode. CNB, as we affectionately call them, provide banking, investment, and trust services across 69 branches in the U.S. Take a look in the description of this episode for a link directly to their website. So, with that out of the way, we welcome Omar to the show, and I was hoping you could share a little bit about yourself and Aurora Grocery for our audience who may not be familiar with you already. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Sure. My name is Omar George. I am the chairman of Aurora Grocery Group, and I'm the CEO of Compare Foods in Charlotte, North Carolina. So my family, I'm a second generation grocer. My family has been in the grocery industry since uh, the late 1970s. In the early 1980s, we all started buying and operating supermarkets in the New York City area uh, in 2004. We began opening and operating supermarkets in North Carolina. And today as a family group under the Aurora umbrella, we operate 37 stores in uh, Connecticut, uh, New York, Massachusetts, and North Carolina. We also have a Food Institute podcast alum with us here today. So Eric, I was hoping you could introduce yourself for our audience who may not be familiar with you yet. Sure thing, and it's great to be back, Chris. Uh, So my name is Eric Virgitz, and I'm a managing director on City National Bank's food and beverage team. City National Bank is the U.S. subsidiary of Royal Bank of Canada, and our team leverages our industry focus and expertise to provide our food and beverage clients with a multitude of creative financing solutions and other banking services. We are a national team covering the food and beverage industry from what we like to say is coast to coast and farm to fork. Perfect. I know we have a lot of ground to cover today, so we're going to jump right into it. And Omar, I'm going to start off with you here. And I think the best place to kind of frame the conversation we're going to have today is just talking about the increasing influence of Latin Americans in the U.S. So I was thinking maybe we could talk about this rising demographic to start, and then we can kind of jump into some more of the grocery aspects. So could you start us off there? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the first thing to understand is the size of this market. Um, As of the last census, there were 62 million Latin Americans living in the United States. And that makes it the third largest Latin American country in the world. And we don't generally think of the United States as a Latin American country. We think of South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. Um, But really, if you look at the United States with the amount of Hispanic residents and citizens that live in it, it's the third largest after Brazil and Mexico. So we're talking about a, a huge market that we have here in the United States. The other part of it is that it's not a homogeneous market. We represent uh, over 20 countries of origin, which means that there are 20 different ways of of speaking Spanish or Portuguese. There's 20 different cuisines. There's 20 different cultures that all of us bring uh, when we we immigrate to the United States. it's, it's not only a very large part of the market, but it's also a very diverse part of the market. And as a retailer, part of our strength is understanding how to merchandise differently based on 
the actual country of origin of the customer that we're serving. So the way that we would merchandise a store in, in New York is going to be different than the way that we do it in North Carolina. Uh, just because of those differences, you might have more Central Americans on Long Island, while you might have more Puerto Ricans in Bridgeport, Connecticut, or you might have more Mexican customers in Charlotte. So all of those differences are very important to understand and not just treat it, even though it is a very big, powerful block economically, not just treat it like it's all the same, because what works for one segment of the Latin American population may not be applicable to another segment of it. So it's very important to be culturally aware in that sense. You know, honestly, when you frame it that way, it's really interesting to call the U.S. the third largest, you know, Latin country in the in the world because of the population. But it does make a lot of sense. And one of the things you said there, too, is just kind of about the immigration story. And I think you have a pretty interesting, you know, kind of assimilation and immigration story with your family. So I was hoping you could share with that and maybe relate that to, you know, the current Latin American consumer in the U.S. today. Absolutely. I, I think that, um, you know, being a, a native New Yorker, you see this immigration story kind of repeat itself over and over again. Uh, you know, when, when when I was going to school, we learned about the, the, the famine in Ireland and how that caused a massive rush of immigration from Ireland to Ellis Island or Italians or the Jewish community, uh, you know, Eastern Europe when they had their difficulties, right? So the United States has really developed this incredible immigration assimilation process that it's been doing since since its inception in you know the 1700s essentially uh how it applies to you know individually to my family my family is originally from the dominican republic they uh we had one family member who was able to obtain a visa to the united states and he moved to new york to queens um and then his siblings including my mother uh, started coming and joining him there. And they did the jobs that most immigrants do. They were dishwashers in restaurants and they were taxi drivers and factory workers. My mother's first job was putting coil springs and mattresses in a factory in New York. Um, and, and it's really the story of how immigrants are able to, to progress and to improve and to really live the American dream when they make that very that very difficult decision to leave their their home country to come to the United States, um, my one of uh, three of my uncles and my mother essentially joined up and purchased a small corner bodega in uh, in New York City in Queens. And if you've ever been to New York, you've seen the bodegas all over the place. Um, that's really how we started out. Uh, and, you know, New York in the 1980s, probably not the most welcoming place for, for large businesses, a lot of closed storefronts, a lot of really opportunities for people like my family that were willing to take that risk, right? So places where uh, traditional grocery stores decided that they no longer wanted to operate and they would leave a box of maybe 15 or 20,000 feet one of my family members would step in and take that risk that the larger corporate entity was not willing to take. So my mom and dad purchased their first supermarket in 1983 in uh, Ridgewood, Queens. And from there, you know, 
we we focused on serving the community and making sure that uh, that our customers are satisfied with the shopping experience that we're providing for them. And 40 years later, it's uh, it's worked out now for us in the second generation. And now we have the third generation uh, that, that are also entering the business. So we've been able to maintain those values through the generations as we continue to grow. Yeah, one of my favorite things on the podcast is being able to talk to some of these American success stories, you know, seeing a family come from another country, come here and build their own business and, you know, expand. It's a really great thing. But I also appreciate you bringing up the Irish aspect there. You know, that's my heritage. And I want to throw this to Eric. But what I'm thinking here is, you know, are we seeing a rising interest for LATAM influence products beyond just Latin Americans? I know Omar really kind of set the stage showcasing that this is a huge nascent market in the U.S. Maybe nascent isn't even the right word anymore since it is kind of burgeoning. But are you finding these flavors resonating with other cohorts and demographics as well? Yeah, absolutely they are. Uh, in fact, you know, I read a few recent studies where a number of consumers across the country and across different cohorts were, were recently surveyed and asked, you know, what their preferred cuisine was beyond just, you know, quote unquote, American food, if you will. And it came down to three, really Italian, Mexican, and then Asian slash, you know, Chinese. And the results were really interesting. You know, first location matters. For example, based on the study, 40% of consumers out West preferred Mexican cuisine, while half of those surveyed in the Northeast still chose Italian. Also, Americans living in cities are more likely to choose Mexican cuisine relative to those living in the suburbs. And that makes sense when you consider the next interesting learning coming out of these surveys, which cuts the data and responses across age groups. Historically, the most popular cuisine in America has been Italian, and it still is among baby boomers and Gen X cohorts, who coincidentally are more likely to live in suburban areas as well. But today, Mexican cuisine is now threatening for that top spot and is likely to overtake Italian sooner than later, given it's the most popular cuisine amongst millennial and Gen Z consumers. Like 82% of all Americans still say they love Italian food, but millennials, those you know, 27 to 42 years of age, chose Mexican as their favorite cuisine, followed by Italian and then Asian and Chinese food. Whereas Gen Z, those younger than 27 years of age, overwhelmingly chose Mexican first and pushed Italian to third place behind Asian and Chinese food. So it's only a matter of time before Hispanic food overtakes Italian as the most preferred cuisine overall. And clearly, this is not only a function of a growing Hispanic population in the United States, but it's also a result of preferences of the non-Hispanic millennial and Gen Z consumer as well. Yeah, and I love that. You know, one of the things that we saw, we hosted Latin Food Week, uh, you know, in September. And one of the major things we saw with a lot of chefs and even food producers was the fusion aspect, right? Being able to kind of incorporate uh, Asian and Latin flavors together. So that's definitely an interesting aspect. But at the end of it, you know, kind of what you were saying there, Eric, just the fact that Italian food, which really seemed like it would never be supplanted, at least in most of my time with the food uh, industry, the fact that we're seeing Mexican food gain such prominence is really, really interesting. And I think the demographics you shared showcase, you know, Gen Z and millennials are going to push the way. So we have a couple more decades of this really uh, going forward. And I'm just wondering, Omar, from your perspective, when you take a look at Gen Z, you know, how do you see the cohort reacting to the rising prominence of Latin foods and flavors? Is it something that's kind of constricted to just Latin Americans or do you find it to be kind of cross demographic as well? I think it's absolutely cross demographic. And I think that the key word with Gen Z has to be authenticity, right? They're not going 
to kind of watered down experiences to to get their food. They're looking to see what's the most authentic Mexican restaurant in my area that I can go to. What's the most authentic? I'm going to go outside of Latin America. What's the most authentic Vietnamese restaurant? Where can I get the actual ingredients of, you know, of Peru for this dish that I want to do? If I want to make a ceviche, where do I go and get actual ingredients that are Peruvian so that I can make my ceviche, right? Uh, so it's really this this key idea of authenticity, the world is so much smaller now and there's so much more information available to uh, to Gen Z than there was 20 or 30 years ago. And they're much more open to cultural experiences. All the time people ask me, you know, I want to go to the Dominican Republic, but I don't want to stay on a resort. Where can I go to have an authentic experience when I'm in the country? And, you know, and I'll give them suggestions for that. So so that the key really to connecting with Gen Z is to be authentic in in the products that you're offering and the experiences that you're providing to them. If you try to do a watered down type of version, or if you want to try to you know, to to Americanize it the way that a lot of other things have been done in the past. That may have worked in the past, but I don't think it works with this current generation that maybe have grown up watching Anthony Bourdain or other travel shows, you know, Rick Steves, where he's going into these countries and really interacting with the culture. Um, they want to also they want to feel like they're part of the culture when they're cooking a dish again, from Colombia or Peru or Central America. So authenticity is key to being able to connect with the Gen Z uh, community. And I think, you know, as a millennial, I got to defend my demographic, right? I think this kind of started with my demographic as well, right? Millennials kind of started pushing for this, but I think the feedback loop with Gen Z is really interesting because as there more, there is more demand for these authentic foods, like other demographics are starting to get uh, more exposed to them as well. So are you seeing that as well, Omar? Kind of like starting with the Gen Z, but maybe then Gen Z's parents are now looking for those authentic experiences as well, just because now they've been exposed to it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I, I, I don't know if I consider myself a millennial. I think that I'm, I, I'm at the oldest and I'm in that generation right between Gen X and millennial that we don't know what to call ourselves. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I think absolutely it, it, it flows from that as well. I think that that did start with, you know, that 1980s, uh, type of generation where that search for authenticity and that search for unique cultural experiences, but understanding that having those authentic cultural experiences is is kind of a way of enhancing your own personality, right? And, and that there's a, there's a tremendous amount of value to experiencing that. And I would agree. I'd love to keep talking about this authenticity aspect. And Eric, we'll bring you in here. But, you know, from my vantage point, there seems like there's a lot of opportunity for either creating authentic Latin brands here or even importing them for American consumption. So I'm just wondering if you could kind of share your viewpoint on the opportunity in this sector. Yeah, I certainly have to agree that there's additional runway to grow, you know, existing and, and create new authentic brands. But, you know, we have to remember, though, you know, while many brands will benefit from this accelerating trend toward ethnic and authentic foods in general, a number of these companies and brands have been around for, for a while. You know, I, you know, I just think of like Goya or Badia or Novamex's Jaritos, for instance. These are brands that, 
you know, beyond just the ethnic retail grocers, right, have been sold in traditional grocery for a number of years. But historically, a limited number of their products were available, and predominantly, they were only available in international and ethnic sections. Now, more than ever, you know, more traditional food retailers are recognizing the importance of these brands and are, you know, increasingly allocating shelf space to them in the main center store aisles alongside brands like Bush's and McCormick and Pepsi. Um, also, historically, I think what we've seen from large, you know, food manufacturers is a focus on how best to market their existing products to the Hispanic community in a way to attract that growing consumer base. I think, however, what has been recognized is that simply a more refined marketing program is not going to suffice. And this goes back to the authenticity for, you know, piece that, that Omar first mentioned. You know, companies are going to need to increasingly focus on how best to invest and allocate resources to attract not only the Hispanic consumer, but also those consumers seeking authenticity of flavor, spice, and ingredients. So you see manufacturers today already increasingly releasing SKUs with fla flavor profiles typically associated with Latin American cuisine, such as you know, using different chiles like habanero, chipotles, or arbol, or spices and seasoning mixes like adobo, as well as those seasonings that are more citrus forward. And in some cases, we see large U.S companies partnering with Hispanic brands in an attempt to market products consumers are increasingly seeking. You know, I think of, you know, I was just at the store the other day and I saw Anheuser-Busch and it's Tajin co-branded Chalada version of Bud Light or Nestle's Mango with Tajin Outshine Popsicle. So you see that, that, that effect. And then finally, some companies are outright acquiring brands like we saw with McCormick acquiring Cholula. And, and to highlight the growing importance of authentic, you know, Hispanic brands, Consider that McCormick was willing to pay a robust eight times revenue or roughly 25 times EBITDA multiple for Cholula and that L. Catterton only owned that company for two years before earning an outside return on the sale of that investment. So private equity generally as a whole continues to seek investments across the ethnic food and ingredient landscape as well. So to sum it up, I absolutely believe the accelerating growth of not only his, his Hispanic consumer base, but also the preferences of non-Hispanic millennial and Gen Z consumers are going to continue to drive demand for authentic Latin American cuisine and food products and will provide ample runway for, for continued growth, um, not only for the established Hispanic brands, but for nascent ones as well. Um, Omar, I know you've got plenty of you know experience with purchasing for the grocery side here. And I'm just wondering, you know, over the last 10 years, we'll kind of take that as our uh, our timeline here. What's changed when it comes to trying to source these products? Are you seeing more uh, companies actually producing them, higher quality, better importing companies that are bringing these products in. How has that changed over the last 10 years? I, I think in our specific business, again, the shrinking world has been to our benefit because what we've really focused on uh, is bringing those brands from the country of origin that connect emotionally with the customer. So if you are from Ecuador and you grew up eating at Tun Van Camps, which is kind of the main brand of tuna fish in Ecuador, you know, chicken of the sea is not going to have the same type of emotional connection with you as the one that you ate when you were growing up. So we've really focused on trying to get that, uh, that emotional connection with the brands that our customers we're used to in their home country. I mean, Goya is a great example. Goya, Goya does this fantastically. And that's the reason they've become so, so strong in the American marketplace, because before you could bring those brands in, they would kind of take those flavors and repurpose them. And that was as close as you were going to get to home. Now you can actually bring the cans from your home country 
and see them on a supermarket shelf. And that's a whole different type of an emotional connection that you're making with that customer. So I think that the ability to import uh, those brands that are so familiar from home uh, are really important. I, I'm thinking of the Venezuelan community, right? The Venezuelan community has a specific type of cornmeal that they use to make their arepas, harina pan, right? And they would come to our store and they would say, look, we can't use maseca, we can't use Pillsbury, we can't use gold medal corn flour. It's got to be ours, right? And as soon as we brought it in, then, uh, you know, we, we saw them respond to that. Um, because again, that emotional connection from home is is very, very strong. And that really creates an incredible amount of loyalty with your customer because they understand that you're listening to them, you're reacting to what they want, and you're providing the, uh, the, the, the assortment that they're looking for. And Eric, I'd like to jump back here. I know we've been talking a lot about, you know, CPG products. We've been talking about the retail side, but I think it'd be worthwhile to talk a little bit about the other aspects of the food industry too, taking a look at food service and other facets we haven't talked about yet. How are you seeing this LATAM trend inspiring those parts of the industry? Um, yeah, look, I think, you know, authentic Hispanic food and beverages, is, you know, the importance of it is, is certainly not limited to, to food manufacturing, food retail. I think, you know, first on the beverages side, for instance, you know, one just needs to look at the rapid growth of tequila and mezcals, the fastest growing spirits based on consumption in the U.S. right now. I mean, you can go into most restaurants and bars today and find multiple tequila options across multiple price points, whether it be kind of the value spirit or the ultra premium tequila, as well as many cocktails on the menu that are now offered that use tequila as a, as a base. Um, on the food side, Obviously, we've witnessed the success of food service chains like Chipotle and Moe's. But beyond that, I would just say, consider the last time you know you went out to eat at a restaurant that was not geared toward a specific cuisine. And by that, I mean, for lack of a better term, one we would define as quote unquote American food as opposed to Italian, Mexican, or Asian. I'm willing to bet that in in many cases there was some type of Hispanic inspired food item or dish on the menu, even if just you know some type of take on the taco. And even some of the larger national chains were seeing reinvent their menus to include more Hispanic inspired items. For example, TGI Fridays now is actively marketing its new Elote street corn. Um, that's not something that you would have necessarily seen 10, 20 years ago, right? And um, you know, outside of the more traditional food service where you see the impact of Latin American cuisine, you know, you see it elsewhere. I'm very much a sports enthusiast. And in any ball game I've taken my kids to over the past few years. There's always been a taco or quesadilla option at concession alongside the more traditional handheld items like burgers and hot dogs now. You know, it's funny, you know, Omar mentioned ceviche, right? And in Miami, you can get Peruvian inspired food like ceviche and other items like handmade empanadas at the stadiums down there. And that wasn't always the case and certainly wasn't the case a decade or two ago. Um, so you're seeing you're seeing the impact across food service as well. And the last anecdote I want to share is one that, you know, I actually just experienced a few weeks back and I think is, is telling, you know, 20 some odd years ago when I was in college, there was one truly authentic ethnic restaurant in town. It's called Niapa and it served authentic Cuban cuisine and had the best coffee around, but it wasn't especially close to campus and you had to drive to its location, which was a bit of a pain. That first location is still there and doing very well. So well, in fact, that the family has now opened a second location, also offering a full slate of authentic Cuban cuisine and coffee. And that location actually happens to be in the food court at the University Student Union. Not only that, that food court now has Mexican cuisine option, a sushi and poke bowl option, a halal option, and a better for you organic shake and wraps restaurant as well. 
That is in stark contrast to the Wendy's, Sparrow, and Subway that was available to me when I was there for undergrad. And I think it's not only further evidence of the growth and assimilation of Hispanic food into American food culture, but it also highlights a generation of consumers that is more adventurous and actively seeking authentic ethnic foods more broadly. I appreciate you bringing that up. Kind of sounds like my uh, food court as well, that Subway tomorrow, Wendy's kind of combo. But I am a big proponent of checking out college dining halls and even just kind of uh, cafeterias, et cetera, where you see college kids eating, you know, you're going to start finding some of the newer food trends. So I think that's a really interesting point. Um, Omar, you talked about this a little bit earlier, but I do kind of want to return to it. Um, you know, I think when most Americans think about Hispanic food, subconsciously, they think Mexican because for decades, that's usually what's available in a supermarket, right? Um, but I know this is changing. I think it's something that is worthwhile to take a look at. So I'm just wondering from your you know, your perspective, how is this dynamic changing? Are you seeing any specific types of cuisine uh, from certain nations really kind of boosting right now? What are you seeing? I think it's more uh, ingredient-based than nationality-based, right? So you might not, you were mentioning Peru a couple of times, you might not be thinking about Peruvian food per se, but you are getting the ingredients for a ceviche, you are having quinoa at your house, right? Instead of maybe rice, which is what you used to have. So the integration of ingredients from Latin American countries, I think is really the way that we're diversifying away from, oh, this is Mexican or this is Argentinian or this is Brazilian. It's more, this ingredient works well let me start integrating that into some of the foods that uh, that that we're having at home, right? Um, and and traditionally, you know, in the United States, it's really been the West Coast and the Southwest is very heavily Mexican. You know, Florida is heavily Cuban. The Northeast is heavily Puerto Rican, Dominican, more Caribbean uh, focused. You're seeing that also change where the mixing of the Latin American communities in different parts of the country is a lot more than what it used to be. Before, it was kind of very split up, right? A supermarket in Arizona was going to be 95% Mexican. A supermarket in New York City was probably going to be 70% Dominican and Puerto Rican, right? Now you're seeing that the increased migration within the United States is really kind of mixing cultures. So you might go to a Colombian restaurant in Charlotte, North Carolina, and you'll see that they'll also have uh, Caribbean dishes on there where a traditional Colombian restaurant might not. Um, so, so even within our community, the amount of, uh, of, of mixing and fusion and, and interaction between the different ingredients from different parts of the world are really playing well with each other and kind of creating really incredible flavors and recipes that uh that the that people are enjoying yeah and that fusion aspect's really exciting you know i guess you know kind of close out this conversation taking a look at the next five to ten years how do you think this is going to sh kind of shake out do you think it's just going to continue on this trajectory do you think it's going to go exponential do you think it cools off and other flavors kind of come in how do you see this going in the next five to ten years omar uh yeah i i think that it's definitely going to continue growing Right. Um, and, and not just, again, within the Latin American community, because now you're seeing a very large growth of uh, subcontinental Asian immigrants coming in from India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Pakistan. Right. And 
again, that mixing continues to take place. Uh, one of the most popular places uh, to eat in New York City is a Dominican sushi restaurant, right? So it is a Japanese uh, Japanese chef that was introduced to Dominican ingredients and started making traditional Japanese sushi using those ingredients, using ripe plantains and, and different things that are very specific to the Dominican community. And the place is packed every single day, right? So, so as we continue to, you know, to be part of this incredible melting pot that is America and new cultures come in and start influencing what's already here, I think that the growth is going to be, the growth and the enjoyment of that process is really going to be unlimited and it can only get better. Awesome. And Eric, I'm essentially going to ask you the same question here. Where do you see this trend going over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, look, 10 years from now, I mean, I, I would say to Omar's point, the growth is still going to be there, you know, now for the next 10 years, right? I, I think 10 years from now, I'd like to think and, and, and believe that we're probably not necessarily going to be discussing Latin food as a quote unquote trend, right? I think at that point, the assimilation and fusion of Latin American cuisine is only going to accelerate in the near term. And as a result, we'll just become a larger part of mainstream cuisine for consumers. And I think that's a function of a few dynamics at play that we've touched on today. You know, again, many of the more populated regions and states like Florida and Texas are already home to some of the largest Hispanic populations in the U.S. And these states continue to exhibit meaningful double digit population growth amongst both Hispanics and non-Hispanics alike. And secondly, we're seeing, you know, a millennial and Gen Z consumer base with a preference toward Hispanic authentic cuisine who are generally more adventurous when it comes to what they eat. So given you've got a growing consumer base of both Hispanics and non-Hispanics living together in some of the most populous regions of the country that also continue to grow rapidly, it's really hard to imagine a scenario where the assimilation doesn't accelerate and Latin food is really only considered a trend 10 years from now. I, I really believe it's going to be more mainstream. You're going to see more fusion and it's just going to become part of, even more so part of the culture of of American food. Guys, I want to thank you both for this conversation today. I wish we had more time. I always feel like this at the end of the podcast, but I do think we covered some great ground here. Um, I'm just wondering, Omar, for those who want to learn a little bit more about Aurora Grocery, where should they go? Sure. AuroraGrocery.com is the main website. Uh, if you are in Connecticut, Massachusetts, or New York, you can also visit our retail website, which is galafoods.com. If you are in North Carolina, you can visit comparesupermarkets.com. And Eric, I'll ask the same question to you. Where should people go to learn more about CMB? Sure. So, you know, folks can learn more about City National Bank at www.cnb.com and about our food practice specifically at www.cnb.com forward slash food and Bev. And once again, take a look in the description of this episode and you'll get links directly to those websites. Omar, Eric, once again, I really want to thank you for spending some time today on the Food Institute podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you. All right. That's going to do it for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. Once again, thanks to Omar and Eric for spending some time with us this week. And also thanks to City National Bank for sponsoring this episode. Till next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off. <laughs>